through Nehemiah chapter 6. A little bit of lengthy text, so I'm not going to add you, ask you to stand, but you can be reverent in your hearts, acknowledging that we're uh, proclaiming God's word here tonight. Here's what the word of God says. Now, when it was reported to Sanballat, uh, uh, Tobiah, uh, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Chepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner and I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. You've also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah, and now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Verse 10. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabal, uh, who was confined at home, he said this, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they're coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they may have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these words of theirs, and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also in those days, many letters went out from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah and the son of Arah. And his son, Jehohanan, had married the daughter of Meshullam and the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him. And then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessings upon our night. Father, we are grateful um, that you and your sovereign, wise goodness have used even fallen people like us to the advancement of your kingdom. We thank you for the evidence of your Holy Spirit and this Lord, mighty man of faith, Nehemiah, but who in himself was just a man. 
Lord, we just see the way your goodness protected him, preserved him, and sanctified him. We get to see the fruitfulness of the ministry that you used just this, this man that was called by you to lead Israel to accomplish the work of rebuilding these walls. Father, now in the new covenant, as servants of Christ, we desperately need to hear what you would have to say to us in our work and our responsibility of building your kingdom um, as, as agents of the great King Jesus. And so we're asking, Father, now that you would have mercy on us, that you would draw us near to you by your spirit through the word, and that you would bless us, or that we might be faithful and fruitful in service to King Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen, amen. <clears throat> One of the things uh, I think we should regularly ask ourselves is are we treating life according to the biblical reality that it is? Uh, We're told by the Apostle Paul that we should be walking by faith, not by sight. Now, that's a verse that's often misconstrued, but, but when he said faith, what he means by that is he means that we trust What God has revealed is true no matter how things might look or feel otherwise. And and Paul gives us insight in Ephesians 6 that lets us know that the Christian life is a daily warfare. Do we really take the time to look at it in that way? The Apostle Paul, as he writes his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, he says this, He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the Lord Jesus' might, by the way. In other words, the strength that you and I need as believers, it does not come from ourselves. It comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from Christ to us by virtue of our faith union with him. And then he says, put on the full armor of God. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual, for, for, uh, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our struggle is not with human beings, church, but with the spiritual reality and worldview behind those human beings. We have a a powerful, invisible foe that has schemes and strategies. And if we're not responding to them in the strength that comes to us from and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are doomed to defeat. But he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. What we have before us in Nehemiah 6 is a wonderful model in the old covenant in this person of work in Nehemiah of standing firm in the midst of the enemy's schemes. But the principles we we see in Nehemiah 6, they're also operative in the new covenant as well in our relationship with our king Jesus in the service uh, that we have to devote to him for and with our lives and so we have two principles tonight that I want to look at and I'm going to leave this first one up here for a while as you'll see the first principle I want us to see in this text is whenever there is progress being made in the advancement of God's kingdom you can expect Satan to stir up his servants to neutralize that progress 
Let me say it again, A, because that's a page worth of notes, and I know I have some note takers here tonight, and I'll give you time to write that down. Uh, but I want to say it again, because it's, it's true. Listen to it. Whenever there is progress being made in the advancement of God's kingdom, you can expect Satan to stir up his servants to neutralize that progress. And since our goal as a church is to make an impact in our community, an impact for Christ in Callahan and in Nassau County and Northeast Florida, even to the four corners of the world, whatever extent we succeed in that, we can expect that the devil is going to stir up his minions to frustrate what we're doing. See, in spite of this uh, previous difficulties that Nehemiah had walked through, had experienced both from enemies within and from enemies without, the wall building project is still going on. The building of the wall has in fact been completed and all that remains to do is just to get the gates on the place. That's it. In spite of all the difficulties they have, have gone through with the work, it's been almost completed. They just are at the tail end now. But when the enemies of God hear about the progress, it stirs them to action. We know who is really behind this, don't we? We know that the evil one is behind them, using them in their fallenness and corruption as his agents. So what we find here is kind of a, a last-ditch effort to sabotage the project. But now they realize what they've got to do. They have got to take Nehemiah out. It's him. Now we've got to assassinate him. We've got to get rid of him. Nehemiah is the catalyzing leader here. And if we get rid of Nehemiah, then we can keep this project from being completed. Now, Satan uses multiple agents in this chapter, and we're going to look at the story now. We find him working through the pagans. Uh, we have Sanballat, who is the pagan governor of the area of Samaria, which is just north of Judea. We also find mentioned this guy Geshem, the Arab, who is the leader of the confederation of Arab tribes that would be to the south and to the east of Judea. But we don't just find pagans here against him. We find apostate covenant people also involved in this. This is that guy named Tobiah. I think we talked about his name previously, but I want to say it again. His name, Tobiah, that name, Tobias, Tobiah, that name actually means God is good. That's what the name means. And, and Tobiah named his son Jehohanan. That is from Yah, God, Yahweh, and Hana, which means grace. The names of this father and this son who are opposing the work is God is good, Yahweh is good, and Yahweh is gracious. So the, the names give us a hint that this fellow had some sort of association with the covenant community of grace and the God of Israel. But what we find from extra biblical sources actually was that he was apparently a Jew who went into Ammon, which is a non-covenanted people, an enemy of God to the east of Jews and became a very influential person among those people. So he's described that way as Tobiah the Ammonite. That's why he's written as that way. Yet you see, he does have this sort of relationship on some level or another with Yahweh. But he's an apostate. He goes by the name Yahweh is good, but he is not a faithful servant of Yahweh. In fact, he's actually working for the other side. 
And, and that shouldn't be surprising to us, church, because we find often that the kingdom of God is attacked not only by raw pagans, but also by apostate church people. Lamentably, we say in our day, we, we not only have the cults, which are apostates, but we have denominations that have rejected the scriptures, that have rejected the clear authority of the Bible, yet they would still consider themselves to be Christian people. But they are apostates. If they reject God's word, then they reject God himself and they cannot be truly Christians. They've become the agents through which Satan works to try and frustrate the advancement of the empire of Jesus. So, so you've got these different parties. You've got pagans, you've got apostates, but you also have those within the covenant community itself here. Uh, compromising Jews is what we would call them, not apostates, but compromising nonetheless. They are yoked with these other people, Tobiah in particular. That's in the last section of our verses here. We'll see how that comes to play as, as also in a part of the attack on Nehemiah and the work he's doing for God. But I want you to see this. In, in Ephesians 6, remember, Paul talked about that we have to stand firm against the devil, and he uses that word schemes. We have to stand firm against the devil, and, and friends, he does have schemes. He has schemes and he has strategies, and unfortunately, some of his strategies are seemingly effective. He employs all kinds of different strategies, and I, I love this because in God's word, we get a glimpse of some of his strategies, so now we can look at a game plan on how to attack them. Uh, first of all, we see that repeatedly, he's trying to get Nehemiah off focus. He tries to get him away from the wall. He tries uh, to look at where he's vulnerable, take him to a place where he will be defenseless so that they can assassinate him. We find that in verse 2. He, he sends these pagans with a message saying, why don't you come on out here to meet with us in this village in the plain of Ono? And by the way, if, a, if the name of a place that someone wants to meet you in the dark is called Ono, don't go to that place, Right? Ono is, is like 20-something miles outside of Jerusalem, so he'd have to go on a long journey to get there. Not to mention, it'd be a sense of defenselessness against these people intending to eliminate him. But by God's grace in his heart, he is so focused on the calling he has to be the agent of building these walls that what's his response to it? His response is, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I stop the work uh, to go out there and meet with you? What God has called him to do is so truly significant and vital in his life. So for him to take a break and go to meet with these people, it would be a deflection from the call of God in his life. Friends, so it is with us. You want to have clear discernment? You must stay focused on what God has called you to do. You must know what the calling of God is on your life. And if you are a Christian, you know that that calling is obedience. And so in the midst of the enemy's attack, you have to remain focused on your obedience and giving glory in honor to King Jesus. But unfortunately, as you may know, Satan doesn't give up that easily. That no was not enough. It says they sent him the same message 
four times with the same invitation, the same solicitation to come out and talk with them. And every time, Nehemiah says no. We know this, don't we? Sometimes the temptations of Satan will come and come and come and come. And if we are not firmly committed to Christ Jesus to continually resist those temptations, we will fall to them. We, we must not allow ourselves to weaken in the face of repeated temptation. We can't. That's why the strength we need, it's got to come from Jesus. But Sam Ballot doesn't give up. Because now we read a fifth time, we're going to try a new strategy. In verses 5 through 9, they're going to try something new. This time, what he does is he sends one of his aides there with not just a message, but something different. It's an open letter. Did you catch that when we read it through? What would be the significance of an open letter? Well, in that culture, when somebody was sending important messages to somebody, uh, to another leader specifically, you would roll that up, you'd put it on parchment or leather, you'd tie it with a string, and you would seal it so nobody else could have gotten to it until it arrived to its original uh, person that you addressed. This is an open letter because Sanballat actually wants the contents of this letter to be spread abound. He wants this word to get out among the people of God. One of my wife's pet peeves, by the way, is when I open her mail. It's addressed to her, let her open it, right? I just can't help it, though. And so if it was open, I'd probably take a look and see inside. I want to know what's going on and if I can take advantage of any gifts she might uh, give or have put ideas in her mind on how to spend her money. And yet, what we find here is an open letter to a community of people. I mean, this is essentially, in our day, posting something on the internet for the world to see. A written open letter to be repeated. This is what has happened here. He wants this condiment to because what he's trying to do now is he's trying to deceitfully slander Nehemiah. He says this, this is the word on the street. This is what's being spread about, Nehemiah, that you really want to be king over these people. And the reason you are actually rebuilding these walls is because you're going to rebel against Artaxerxes, the cupbearer, the one you cupbearer for, the king of Persia, the biggest empire in the world. You're going to rebel against him. That's why you actually wanted to rebuild the wall. In fact, we've got it on hearsay that you've appointed prophets uh, that are going to be your manipulative tools so when you arise to be king, they will prophesy you to be the king of Israel. This report is going to the Persian king. This is, guys, this is really serious because what this is is a revolt against the Persian emperor. The Persian emperor did not take kindly to kings coming up and taking part of his kingdom. So there's a real threat here. In fact, it's so real uh, that if we go back to Ezra chapter 4, the book before this, we find out that a tactic very similar actually worked to get a previous effort to try and rebuild the city stopped. So now the question is, what does Nehemiah do? What happens if all this panic starts spreading among the people? Well, Nehemiah is, is just confident in his trust in the Lord. He, he's confident in his trust in the Lord. So what he says to them is, is this. 
Such things as you are saying, I believe this is verse 8, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. That's a very short and direct answer, isn't it? No, I'm not coming. This isn't working. You're wrong. That's false. You are inventing this stuff. You're making it up. But, but Satan doesn't stop there either, friends. We read in verses 10 to 14, by the way, just to stop there and think about this. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, this is one of the devil's tricks. He loves to use the possibility of your name being slandered as a tool to get you to stop working for the Lord. But look at what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah wasn't even that concerned about his own name. He's concerned on being on the right side on the truth. He's concerned still with the focus of what God has called him to do. And, and why is it, why really is it that we get so hurt and offended when our name is being slandered? Is it really because we think, we like to say this, well, I just, I would hate for that to be a testimony against the Lord. Is that really the case? Is it really? Or is it because... We all struggle with this thing called pride. Because I can tell you this, if, if you don't come to your own defense there and you, you just allow slander to be slander and you continue to focus on obeying Christ and being merciful and gracious with one another, God will show out in that. He, he'll bless you in that obedience. Uh, you, you focus on the character of Christ, you model his character, and you know that Jesus was slandered, right? And yet, what did he do? Like a sheep led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. But he accomplished redemption for all of us. We need to model that if we are going to have discernment while under attack. Now, we move on to the next tactic. Now, the enemy is working through the wicked who are actually in the old covenant church there in Jerusalem. This is where it gets crazy ridiculous, okay? It's this fellow named Shemaiah, and, and he's a prophet, but we find out that he's, he's a false prophet. We find out that this dude's been hired by Sanballat and Tobiah to create a trap, sort of like a sting operation for Nehemiah. This is like mafia-esque, by the way, what they're attempting to do to this guy. So he comes under the guise of giving a prophecy, and he says, uh, Nehemiah, your, your enemies, they're, they're coming after you. They're coming tonight, and they're going to kill you. They're going to come here, and this is what you need to do. I've got a prophecy. What you need to do is you need to go into the temple where you will be safe as a place of of refuge. Now, in the grace of God, because Nehemiah knew the God through the discernment that God has given Nehemiah, he realizes that this is not a true prophet. That this Shemaiah is not speaking the word of the Lord to me. And he knows that from a couple of ways. First of all, he responds again, who, who am I that I should flee? In other words, God has called me to this mission, and I know he's called me to this mission, therefore, he's going to protect and preserve me. Therefore, I know as long as I'm obedient to him, I have nothing to be afraid. He knew that the goal was to play on fear to get him to do something he shouldn't do. See, if he had fled, then his reputation in the eyes of the people would be gone. He would come across as a coward, as someone who's selfishly looking after himself and said, so he says, who am I that I would do that? But then, more importantly, he says, who am I that I would go into the temple 
Because here's the thing about having discernment while under attack. You must know the word of God. Because Nehemiah, who knows the Old Testament, knows the Old Testament said, if you go into that holy place, you are risking death. Because God said, no one can go into the holy place but the priest. So he says, I'm not going. Once again, what do we find? We find the grace of God strengthening Nehemiah's heart that he resists that temptation that would lead him into sin and very likely bring the the work of God, the program God set before him to a halt. That's not the task uh, that he was called to. The task he was called to was rebuilding the wall and so he focuses on that. Unfortunately, that's not the last attack we find. See, in the very last verses of this chapter, we find a number of compromised Israelites. And these guys are the nobles among the people of God. And they are actually in this committed relationship with Tobiah. Tobiah the Ammonite. The one who is trying to subvert the work of God going on in Jerusalem. It says they have entered into an oath with him. And the way this came about is through intermarriage. We find that in verse 18. Read verse 18 with me, if you will. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Aral, and his son Jehohanan. He married his daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. They owed this apostate Jew. His wife, by the way, was a covenantant woman and his his son had married the daughter of Meshulam. And and if you, you remember that name, You remember when we had to read that long list of names? Meshulam was was one of the guys who was working on the wall. So you have multiple unlawful marriages between God's covenant people and these apostates. And so this unequally yoking has created a new issue. What they're trying to do is get Nehemiah reconciled to Tobiah. Light and darkness. But Nehemiah resists. He's firm in his resolve. And we, we find that these people are going uh, to tell Nehemiah what a great guy Tobiah is. And then they're going straight to Tobiah to tell them that everything Nehemiah says. They're actually internally subversive of the kingdom of God. Church, I, I think there's a warning there for us, isn't there? Jesus warns us all the time about false prophets, those who claim to be bringing a message of God, but Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. And as they come across as contrary to what they are, it means this for us, church. It means you have to be careful not to believe everything you hear preached. Because there are, in our day, false prophets The devil's strategies are not that different uh, today. They're not different today in the new covenant than they were back in Nehemiah's day. In fact, the last thing I want to say about this is, we've already talked about this, spent a whole sermon on this, but over and over and over again, this theme just keeps coming up in Nehemiah 6. We find there's an appeal to fear being used. If you look at verse 9, He's talking about this messenger that came from Sambud and, and he says, for all of them were trying to frighten us thinking they'll be discouraged with the work and it will not be done. Then in verse 13, he says that this prophet Shemaiah has come so that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin. In verse 14, he said all these prophets were trying to frighten me and then we find again at the very end in Tobiah's letters, he sent letters to frighten me. Now, the devil knows the vulnerability that fear can create in us. 
afraid that if, if we do what God says, things might turn out badly for us, so we do what God says not to do. We compromise. We cave in. It just seems easier at the time. But throughout the Bible, over and over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament, God repeatedly says, do not fear. The reason he gives why we are, ought not to be afraid is, for I am with you. That is why the, the union we have with Jesus uh, should make us strong to conquer our fears. So, so we can do what God wants us to do. You see, listen, courage is not necessarily not being afraid. Courage is doing what you ought to do even when you are afraid because you know it's the right thing to do. God gives us the right reason and the reason always is, is that God is with us. So let's think about some of the promises of God. Nothing in all of creation is going to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What a reason that we should be fearless in our worship and service of our great king. It's in the 23rd Psalm. We know this so well, don't we? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why not? Why wouldn't you fear evil or harm when you're going through something as difficult as facing death? For you are with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, we see here a lot of people can be against you, but who is going to overthrow what God is doing if he is for you? The answer is nobody. Our God is a sovereign God, and he will have his will accomplished. He is the victor in that way. Our next point here, my goal was to hopefully give you enough time to write down the first point. Hopefully You've had that time now. But here's the second point that I want us to look at very quickly, briefly here. Our confidence against Satan must be in Christ through the spirit-blessed means of grace. Our, our confidence against Satan, the grounds we have to know we're fighting this enemy, it's got to be in Christ through the tools he uses, the spirit-blessed means of grace. Once again, what do we know from Scripture? Because not, not even the gates of hell will prevail against the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Nehemiah is an example for us of the importance of the means of grace in resisting temptation. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate model for this in us, right? But he tempted by Satan in the desert. What did he do? He quoted Scripture. It is through the word of God that Nehemiah resisted evil. He understood what God had called him to do, what his call was on his life. He understood the law of God. He knew going into the temple would be an evil thing to do as well as a foolish thing to do. So through the word of God, he prevailed. He also knew, by the way, that this strength didn't come from himself. When, when they are trying to weaken the hands of the people so the building stopped, he said, oh God, give me strength. He, he knows through prayers of faith. This is how the strength of God comes into our lives, into our hearts, to enable us to be victorious. So we, we too also have a dangerous foe that is on the lookout for us. I love this text in James that, that says, it's a very simple text, very memorable text. It says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do what first? 
Submit, therefore, to God. What does that mean? It means you commit yourself to God and doing what God has for your life, what he wants you to do. And we are told that when we submit and surrender to God, when we are devoted to God, to love him, to live for him, to praise him, and to please him above all else, then we have the power to be resistant of the devil. And then, it is then he will flee from us. Because our Lord, our God, is mightier than the devil. But church family, we must also see here that Jesus is the greatest fulfillment of this model in Nehemiah. Jesus is the one who is the greater restorer. Jesus is building a greater kingdom than the kingdom of the old covenant. Our great king Jesus has assured us of victory. Just like God had promised this amazing victory in this text, the whole project, as we read in verses 15 and 16, is completed in just 52 days. They have rebuilt the walls and the gates of Jerusalem in less than two months. They have done that under the blessing of God. And so when the kingdom victory comes our way, we must be careful not to try and take credit for it ourselves. See, that's why the enemies of God were all demoralized because they had failed in their own efforts to subvert the advancement of the kingdom of God. But the covenant people knows this all came by the hand of God. It was the hand of God that was behind all their diligent work. Now listen, it it doesn't eliminate their diligence of work. There was Nehemiah's, of course, effective leadership, the cooperation among the people, the willingness to repent of sins and to bring restoration. There was this active resistance against the enticements of the evil one to give up the work of the kingdom. Yet, all of these things ultimately come at the hand of a sovereign, wise, and good God. This is why the means of grace are so important. See, coming here, worshiping together as the people of God is so vitally important because we meet in a special way with King Jesus to receive the strength we need to be faithful servants of him the six other days of the week. Do you view church that way? That you are getting refueled, energized to serve King Jesus? Because we are all under Christ. We are all charged with our part in building the walls of the kingdom of God and the new covenant. That is why the challenge comes to us. Are we thinking this way? Is this the way we're looking at our lives? That we are called to be agents of God's kingdom. To be seeking first as our highest priority. The most important thing in our lives is the kingdom of God for the glory of God. The means of grace are ways we will get the grace to be faithful and fruitful in this work. It's through the word of God and prayer as we seek this two-way communication with God. As, as we read what God desires for our life from the, in the word of God, we come to God to receive from him that which we need to be who he wants us to be. So ultimately, you see the victories that come, they serve to glorify God to humble the enemies of God, and to advance the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, as as we wrap up, I I want us to think some. I know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't ask you to think on a Sunday night, right? Engaged in a worship service. Just can't help it. But I need to say this. Kingdom victory only comes to those who are sold out for Jesus. 
wholeheartedly in love with, confident in, joyfully in, and committed to Jesus. The question is, are you that way? Are you wholeheartedly all in for Christ? Or are you more like the nobles? You still want to have that relationship with the worldlings. I mean, they're, they're even religious worldlings. I mean, look at their names. There are a lot of good names like Tobiah and Jehohanan, but, but they're not people of the kingdom. See, friends, there are a lot of Christians who are half-hearted. They want to be friends with God. They also want to be friends with the world. We are called to be salt and light to a culture. Not ashamed of Jesus, but in love with Jesus, hungering to know Jesus better, hungering to be fruitful in serving Jesus, bringing the gospel to people by loving our neighbors, by putting people as more important than ourselves, letting our light shine among men so that we might bring glory to God. You cannot do that as a half-hearted Christian. You cannot do that if you are not all in, wholeheartedly committed to Christ. So the question is, are you committed to this Christ? To love him, to live for him and serve him. Remember, it only takes a little faith. It's, but it's true faith. It's actual faith. It's the love of Jesus that controls us, that directs us, that motivates us and mobilizes us. That is why it's important for us to be cultivating this kind of loving affection with Jesus. And the means of grace is how God has appointed for us to do that, publicly and privately. Because I can tell you, church family, and you see it, the enemy is coming after us. More and more people are recognizing the vulnerability of Bible-believing Christians and the loss of even some of our First Amendment rights as it pervades this culture. So, church, what we need to do is not fear, not find our God and a politician. We need to be strong in the Lord Jesus. Because there may be coming a time very soon where we will have to pay a very heavy price to be faithful to him. But it is only the faithful Christians who are willing to live for and even die for Jesus. And they are the ones who will be fruitful. Whom Jesus works to advance his kingdom on the earth. So will you join me in doing something? Can we just lay aside all the compromise? Can we just not be like the nobles? I can tell you what. A wholehearted church, a wholly committed church... I believe we'll do wonders for the kingdom. If we want to follow this path of this example of Nehemiah and serving the kingdom, building the kingdom walls that we have in this, this new covenant age, it, it can't be half-hearted. It can't be just be something we do on a whim. It can't be just something we add on to the rest of our lives. You exist for the glory of the kingdom of God. It's why you're here. It's your life's purpose. Why would you devote half your heart to what you were made for? What you were created for? I pray that we renew our commitment to Christ. What in the world 
would hinder us from coming afresh to Jesus? What possibly could be hindering us? Nothing. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Father, we are grateful. First of all, Lord, that you don't demand perfection (laughs) because none of us could qualify, but that you have provided perfection in King Jesus. Father, we pray now that the work of the Holy Spirit would help us understand the gospel. We don't have to work ourselves into your favor. You've secured for us a place with you in Jesus and what he has done when he said it is finished. He accomplished everything necessary to make us right with you through his perfect righteousness and his atoning blood. But we pray now that the work of the Holy Spirit wouldn't just slink into us, but we would run to you in love and faith and repentance and joy that your saving grace really does save us and sanctifies us. Father, we want to be more fruitful Christians. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would be growing in us a hunger for Jesus and satisfying that hunger through the means of grace. Lord, bless us, use us, we pray. Turn us back to yourself, we pray, and send us out as fruitful agents of our great King and advancing in Jesus' kingdom on the earth through the good news of his gospel. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.